who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Students, you are dismissed to your classrooms. And as they leave, I'll ask, I'll ask us to stand for the reading of Jonah, the fourth chapter, which can be found on page 775 in your, in your pew Bibles. Hear the inerrant word of God, beginning in chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they had done, what they did, what Nineveh did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country, that, that it is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out to the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might make be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, Is it better for me to die than to live? But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in the night and perished in the night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from the left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And also much cattle. As we come to the end of Jonah, what surprised you? What stood out to you that you didn't see before? As I said in my first sermon on Jonah, we all know this story. But what I asked us to do is to listen and to see the parts of the story that we had forgotten, that we had misremembered, that we truly didn't take to heart. What, what particulars did you not see? What characters had you forgotten? What circumstances surprised you in the book of Jonah? Were you captivated by God's grace? 
Were you astonished by his mercy? Not that God is gracious or that God is merciful, but just how gracious and how merciful he truly is. From the beginning to where we find ourselves this morning, and also much cattle, over and over and over again, God's grace should astound us. But the problem is that it wasn't for Jonah. It didn't astound him. We've come to the point in the story where jo- if, if I were God, if I were God and I saw Jonah say this, I'd be like, we're done. Your time's up. I've had it. I've warned you. I've saved you. I've warned you again. I saved you again. I've provided everything and you still will not obey. I'm done. Thank the Lord I'm not like God. Thank the Lord God's not like me. I mean, what chance is this? Four for Jonah? Is this chance five? I hope that we came, come to a realization. And I hope that we all experience what the author of this book so clearly wanted the original audience to experience when they read this book. The grace and the mercy of a God who loves us, even though we don't deserve it. This book should act like a mirror for us. It should act like a mirror for Israel, the northern kingdom in the 8th century, who heard this story told to them as what a prophet of God had done when the word of the Lord came to him. And they should see who they had truly become in light of who their God truly was. Because at this point in the book, we should all be saying the same thing. Come on, man. Get your act together. You've ha- we've had it. You've had your last chance. But look, then we look in that same mirror at ourselves. Come on, man. You've had another chance. How could you screw up again? And this is what we have to ask ourselves. What do we truly believe about God? Because what we truly believe about God is what will truly change our lives. And what Jonah 4 requires of us to do is to ask us, are we more like Jonah or are we more like God himself? Because this is is what Jonah does. Jonah, again, sees the divine mercy and grace of God, and he becomes angry. And as we saw last week, God comes to him, 
and asks him, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah, he doesn't answer the question. He leaves. He walks out of the city. He's had it. And he goes to the east and he builds a shelter for himself. And it seems that Jonah's doing one of two things. He's either holding out and still hoping that God brings the disaster that he promised. Or he's hoping that Nineveh would reveal who they truly were. That their repentance would be some fake repentance. Whichever one is true, what we do know is true is that Jonah doesn't want God's mercy to be extended to anyone else. He wants to hoard it for himself. But what do we see God do yet again? God goes after him. God pursues him like the mighty counselor that he is. He goes and speaks to Jonah. And God gives Jonah an object lesson. Sinclair Ferguson calls this a divine stress test. A stress test is divine is designed for doctors to see how you might react under certain stimuli. And this is exactly what God is doing to Jonah in verses 6, 7, and 8. He is the God who has created the heavens and the earth. He is the God who is in charge of all things. And we see in these three verses that he appoints, he appoints three objects to test Jonah. Much like he appointed the great fish to save Jonah in chapter 2. He appoints a plant, a worm, and a scorching east wind to reveal his grace. To reveal his grace. We often have a hard time understanding God's sovereign power does anything except bless us. And that's what this story says. It tells us that God blesses Jonah by providing a plant to cover him from the shade. And this shade made Jonah exceedingly glad. And we should hear that irony. He was exceedingly glad about the plant just as much as he was exceedingly angry about God's act of grace and mercy towards Nineveh. He was angry at God for relenting from roasting 120,000 people and some cattle. But he was overjoyed because he got some air conditioning. It should be impossible for us not to see the hypocrisy. God gave him a divine stress test. Because God acts again in verse 7. But when dawn came, the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, 
it is better for me to die than to live. Isn't it astounding? Jonah would rather die. He would rather die than repent. He wants to die because his anger for not being delivered from his own disaster, but yet he's so convinced that those other people deserve the same disaster. God is sovereign over both of these. Both in blessing Jonah with cover of a plant and for bringing hardship on Jonah. Do we have an image of a God who's that big in our lives? It was just a few weeks ago, we had a man stand right here at Presbytery, a candidate for ordination. And when I asked him, please tell your story and of your calling into the ministry, he told us a story of how God blessed him with epilepsy. Because he believed God was truly in control of all things. He knew that God was just as sovereign over the good things as he was the bad things. God will have compassion on whom God will have compassion. And if salvation isn't by grace alone, then there's something that we have to do to earn it. But in the story of Jonah, all of God's mercy and all of God's grace is solely dependent upon his love. God had appointed a great fish, appointed a plant, appointed a worm, and appointed a scorching wind. All of it, all of it is God's grace should have changed Jonah. We have to ask ourselves, does it change us? When we experience God's great blessing, when he answers our prayers, do we extol the name of Yahweh? And even when we experience hardship, even when we discover trials and testing? Do we praise the name of Yahweh? And we have to ask ourselves, what causes us to be glad? Last week we looked at what caused Jonah to be angry. Because our anger quickly reveals our hearts. And in the opposite way, we see that Jonah's joy here actually reveals his heart. He was joyful, he was glad, and he was made happy because of this plant. Jonah's joy blinded him of God's miraculous work and of his grace. Do our joys and our pleasures blind us from God's miraculous grace? 
Do our joys hinder us from participating in God's great kingdom work? Do our joys cause us to not even consider how God might be using us with our particular gifts, our special character, even our money for the good of his redemptive purposes to proclaim the kingdom of God? And you might just say, oh, I'm just a student. I'm just a child. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a lawyer. I'm just a teacher. I'm retired. I work from home. How do we hold? How do we hold what we joy the what we have joy in the most? How do we hold our comforts so close to us that we do not dare ask God how we can participate in proclaiming his kingdom to the lost? The answer for you is, I don't don't know how you can do that. But what I do know is that if you're completely focused on what brings you joy and what brings you comfort, it will get in the way of God's redemptive purposes for his world. If you care more about your comfort and your joy than you do about proclaiming the good news of God and his grace then you have misplaced what God has given you as to be most important in your life. What God is exposing to Jonah is this conflict of his kingdoms. Paul Tripp says, this conflict between the kingdom of self and the kingdom of God is exposed. Jonah's heart is exposed. Jonah cares more about himself than he does anybody else. Jonah is more concerned about being covered from the shade than he is about 120,000 people coming to know Yahweh. So we have to ask ourselves what kingdom is in charge of our schedule? What kingdom is in charge of our money? What kingdom commands our passions and our thoughts? What kingdom shapes our conversations? What kingdom characterizes our relationship? What kingdom is reflected in our marriages and in our children? What's so scary about the kingdom of self in which we are the kings and queens, is that it masquerades, and we might even mistaken it for the kingdom of God. But it's not about the kingdom of God. You can regularly come to church. You can regularly put offering in a plate. You can drop your kids on Wednesday night. You can ask for prayer. But what actually rules inside of your heart Is it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of self? Because if the kingdom of self, if if the kingdom of self is what rules in our hearts, we need to ask Jonah to move over. 
to make more room. And I can say it's getting crowded in here. Oh, that we might proclaim your kingdom come, oh God. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God states, this is what you should care about. You should care about these 12,000 people. You should care about this cattle. My Old Testament professor in college in seminary says, everything about the Lord's description is meant to underscore how little the plant should mean to Jonah. He did not spend hours laboring over it. He did not cause it to grow. He, did, he had not time to get attached to it. It was just a day-old weed and happened to grow up beside his shelter. Everything about the Lord's description of the city is meant to underscore how much it should have meant to Jonah. We could paraphrase God's declaration. Nineveh was more than 12,000 people in it. People made in my image. And they are utterly lost. With no idea what is right and wrong, they are like little children who cannot tell the difference between their right hand and their left hand. And even if you do not care about the people, think about the animals, Jonah. There are people in that city There are animals that I created in that city that I care for, and you care more for the plant. Let's be real. There is true evil in the world. There are people who are truly evil. There are people who are out to hurt us. There are people who take advantage of others. And if you don't think that those people are true, talk to Haley Duffy about the Carl Perkins Center. Talk to Delena, who has to go into homes and removes children from terrible situations. Talk to our lawyers and judges who see the crime inside our community. If you watch the news, you hear about it. There are people all over the world all over this county, all over Memphis, that don't know their left hand from their right, who are violent, vicious, and they're cruel. And they're just like the people of Nineveh. And God saw it fit to send his word that they might experience salvation. And that was too much for Jonah. God's love and compassion had gotten too far. Jonah had found a people unworthy of saving, unworthy of hearing of the Lord's mercy, unworthy to receive anything but judgment. But that's not how God is. What this author of Jonah is trying to teach us, trying to teach the people of Israel, is that everyone, Nineveh and Israel alike, all need the grace and the compassion of a loving God because none of us deserve it.
And you might notice that the end of this book, it ends with a question mark. It ends with God asking Jonah this question. You pity the plant. Do you not pity the people? Do you not pity the animals? And there's no response recorded. It's as if the author meant the readers to answer the question. Christ Presbyterian Church, do you care for the plants and the trees, your land and your gardens? You should. They're part of God's creation. Brothers and sisters, do you care for your animals, for your cats and your dogs, your horses and your cattle? Good. They are part of God's creation. Brothers and sisters, do you care for all people, all of them? Do you care for those sitting in the jail of Fayette County? Do you care for the people of Memphis? Do you care for people who don't look like you, who don't talk like you? Do you care for them? Because they were created in the image of God, and God cares for them. If you go into a retail store, I don't know if people actually go into retail stores anymore. I don't know the last time I actually went into a retail store. They train their employees to ask you open-ended questions. They train their employees to ask a question other than, can I help you? Because the only response to, can I help you, is no. I don't need your help. They ask open-ended questions so they might strike up a conversation. What brings you in today? This book is left with an open-ended question that we all must answer. Do we care about the things that God cares about? And I pray that a response is, yes, O oh Lord. Of course, of course we care about these people because you first cared about us. You have been merciful to us. How can we not be merciful to others? Father, cause us to be merciful. This is the correct answer. And this might be an answer that passes very easily over our mouths. But the next question is, does this answer realize in the way that we live? Do we show what we truly believe by the way that we care, the way that we show mercy, the way that we love others? Because what we truly believe will drive the rest of our lives. Do we care? Do we want to show mercy and grace? Our answer reveals 
whether we are a disciple of Jonah or whether we are a disciple of Jesus. Because it was Jesus who saw the crowds and had pity on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It was Jesus who had compassion and pity on people who did not know their left from their right. Jonah turned out to be a prophet who only wanted to give his life up for his joy, not to fulfill the will of the Lord. But Jesus was a greater prophet, the one who came to fulfill the word of the Lord. Jonah went outside of the city to complain about God's mercy and grace. Jesus went outside the city to bear his cross so that we might experience God's grace and his mercy. If you don't think God cares about the lost, you've missed who Jesus is. Because that is who he came for. Tim Keller says, Jonah went outside hoping to witness the city's condemnation. Jesus went outside to die and to accomplish God's salvation. He received our condemnation that we all truly deserve. It is in Jesus, in Jesus alone, that we see the mercy and the grace of God. Does that captivate you? Does that surprise you? It should. But that's who God is. That's how much Jesus truly loves you. This book was written to draw Israel out of their sin, to come to repentance, and to reflect their Savior. This book is calling for us to do the exact same thing. to see God's reflection, to see how holy he is, that we might fall on our knees in repentance, but that we might go to the nations to proclaim his mercy and his grace. And we will fail. But his mercy is never ending. And his love is forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for redeeming us in Christ. Lord, reveal our sin to us. Conform us into the image of Jesus that we might fulfill your mission. We ask this in his name. Amen.